everyone. Welcome to A Gut Feely. My name is Jake and I'm joined here today with Dave. As health coaches and educators, we've helped thousands of clients optimize their life by healing their gut. Our aim with this podcast is to provide you with some of those tools. Now, before we get into it, don't forget to check out the show notes for links to our social media profiles. And if you like what we've got to say, go with your gut and give this podcast a follow. Now, let's get into today's show. <laughs> okay, welcome everyone to a new episode of A Gut Feeling. Today, we are talking about an unspoken about pandemic, a pandemic which has been going on for years and is getting worse and worse and worse. And it's not one you're going to see in the news. It's not one you're going to see on social media. It's not one that's been spoken about by almost anyone. So Dave, you're the one who brought this to my attention. What is it we're talking about? Yeah, well, I think I've been boring you to tears lately, like talking about this and uh it's definitely, you know, caught my interest. And I think I think why it's caught my interest so much is like why based on the data, why isn't it getting talked about yeah, way more than it is? Yeah. And it's it's barely getting talked about at all. Uh and what we're talking about is antibiotic resistance. And we're actually, you know, we're going to talk about antibiotic resistant bacterial infections, which are a huge problem. But I think it's probably important for people to understand like, okay, what is antibiotic resistance and how, how does bacteria actually create this resistance to antibiotics? Okay. I, I think a lot of the time people might be sort of misinformed around this in terms yeah. of like, they don't really know that bacteria is, is highly adaptable. Okay. They, they, are, they are highly adaptable because like, once again, from an evolutionary perspective, they evolve way quicker than us. Okay. And especially over the last four decades, They've really had to adapt to, to antibiotics and they've adapted. And, you know, some of the mechanisms that they've used to be able to adapt to antibiotics, well, some bacteria strains can have like this, almost like a, a natural antibiotic um, resistance. And so what I mean by that, it's more to do with the, they've created more structurally sound cell membranes. And, and, and with that, you know, even, you know, structuring, uh, and getting together in colonies and tribes and forming like a protective mucilage. And we're, we're going to touch on that a little bit more. And that would be called a biofilm. Yeah. Okay. And, and we'll go into a biofilm a little bit more, but so that's what we sort of like call like there's this naturally sort of occurring resistance. Yeah. Okay. And then it's also some bacteria, what they are able to produce is like enzymes. Okay. And those enzymes, because once again, just it's highly adaptable. Okay. Those enzymes, actually inactivate the antibiotics so they actually impact the targetability of the antibiotics okay and so once again this is uh you know re really significant okay this is really significant okay and then also like there's they, they call them like uh, bacteria can develop they're called efflux pumps and efflux pumps actually allow the bacteria to like push out the antibiotics out of the cell wall I mean, I know these things sound really crazy, okay? But, you know, if you look at the, you know, the ratio between bacteria and our cells, it's 10 to 1. So, you know, we are predominantly bacteria. And once again, they're just like, they're not just going to sit there and cop it. That's what we mm -hmm. just need to understand, okay? They are going to find a way and they've found a way, okay? And even what can happen is like bacteria can acquire, like they can acquire like mutations in the DNA, especially during yeah. what, what we call like cellular replication. Mm. And so for people who don't know what the cellular replication is, this is how bacteria proliferate through the cellular replication process. Okay. So that can occur. And 
they, they can even pass on like genetic material. Uh, um, and they, I, I think they call it horizontal gene transfer. That's, that's the terminology that is used. Okay. But they will actually pass down the genetic material basically to other bacteria. Mm. And that actually means that that bacteria becomes antibiotic resistant as well. And when the bacteria is getting exposed to like antibiotics, it does, it's not going to kill the bacteria cell. And then what it's really going to do is target more the non-resistant bacterial strains and basically just wipe out the non-resistant bacterial strains. And obviously what we're compromising there is we're further compromising the bacteria ratios. Okay. And so you're going to have a lot more of these antibiotic resistant bacterial strains and less of the, you know, maybe some of the beneficial positive gram bacteria and negative gram bacteria. So once again, you're just going to affect the ratio. So you're affecting the environment, you're affecting the ecosystem. So just let's pause there for one moment. So there's a lot there. Now, I think what we need to go into is why is this such a big issue? And, and just before we do, effectively to summarize what you said there is this has become more of an issue because, well, I mean, there's multiple parts of it. But one part is bacteria actually learns and is actually able to um, pass down to future generations of bacteria this resistance. Now, what's uh, this ability to be resistant to antibiotics? And, and what's cool, and we're going to talk about it a little bit later, is that it can't actually do that to some particular natural, almost natural antibodies in a sense, but, but you know, natural antimicrobial compounds. So we're going to talk about the solution to this issue a little bit later. But before we do, why is this such a big issue? Because a lot of people will have heard maybe their doctors say, look, you have to finish the course of antibiotics. That's really important. Don't stop taking them halfway because, you know, then the bacteria will become resistant and that doesn't sound like that big a deal. You're like, oh, well, whatever. I'll just take a different antibiotic. So is this even a big issue, Dave? Why is it actually an issue we should care about? It's, it's huge. Like, it's huge. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, like, I can't, like, even what I say is probably not going to emphasize how big a problem this is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm like, I am really obsessed with this at the moment. And the reason I'm obsessed with it, because I'm really concerned about it. Mm. And like, I think it's really important. Like, let's just look at some stats. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. People would just ask like, okay, so where, where, where's this issue come from? And really would, would probably have to say it's man-made. So we've actually created the problem. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, one thing to talk about is that antibiotics have been misused and they've been overused. Yes. And, you know, let's, let's just use some examples. Um, well, one example would be if someone's got like yeast and candida issues, so they've got like fungal infections. Okay. And then, we know they've got the fungal infection and then what gets used to try and clear up the fungal infection is antibiotics. Yeah. Even though what is going to work against a fungal infection, strangely enough is antifungals. Makes so I'm sense. not having to go at using, <laughs> using, you know, uh, pharmaceuticals here, but you, you really need to use something like nystatin or like an, or like a proper antifungal. Okay. So if you're using an antibiotic for antifungal, there's a there's a, a clear example of misuse of antibiotics because it's not going to be effective, more to the point. Okay, and then you're just using it, and this is how we start to create more antibiotic resistant bacterial strains. Yeah, okay, so there's that. Okay, and then well, what about viral infections? Now, yes, viral infections can create things like cytokine storms, so they create like a pro-inflammatory storm, and that can definitely create bacterial complications okay but if we're talking about like an actual viral infection okay you know once again is that going to be the best course of action mm. to use something like antibiotics 
you know, mm. straight from the get-go. And if we use something that's a little bit relevant, you know, in the in the present environment, okay, like obviously when COVID first erupted, yeah, okay, the usage of antibiotics, and once again, this is American stats, okay, so I can't say for other countries around the world, but within the first six months, I think it was from March 2020, that antibiotic usage was was utilized in about 50% of actual COVID patients. Mm. Okay. That's quite a huge amount. Mm. And I mean, I couldn't give you the, the sheer amount, okay, of, mm-hmm. of the antibiotic usage, but that's that's large numbers. Now, if we've already got a problem and then we amplify the usage mm. of the antibiotics, are we going to so so when we talk about superbugs, we're talking about antibiotic resistant bacteria that's what we're talking about yeah okay. can, can i share a couple of the stories there because it is yeah. it's just madness this so and you know we i didn't even think about this before the call um but you know i've had clients you know, you've mentioned obviously covid i've had clients two clients and i'm sure there's more but two people have mentioned to me that they were getting a, a rash on their face from wearing a mask okay dermatitis that went to the doctor and the doctor said let's just try antibiotics and see what happens it was like, it's literally a friction caused issue from wearing a mask. Why are they giving them antibiotics? I've had clients where the doctor has prophylactically prescribed them antibiotics every single month because this person was getting UTIs. So they had done 20 to 30 courses of antibiotics ongoing over the last two years before they spoke to me prophylactically. It is just absolute madness. I just want to read out one um, sentence from a, a paper, and this paper is two and a half years ago, and it's called Implications of Overprescription of Antibiotics. And it says, the first line says, the use of antibiotics in recent years has become more aggressive and more common, and the inappropriate use, to be more precise, the abuse of these prescriptions is the root cause for increasing bacterial resistance and adverse outcomes. And then it goes on to study doctors and how they're prescribing antibiotics. And then the conclusion they made was all the groups of doctors they looked at, they were all, quote, there was a general absence of mindfulness with respect to the rules for antibiotic prescription. It's just unbelievable. One word, one word I want people to look into is iatrogenesis because when people ask me, why don't you study medicine? Why don't you become a doctor? That is my answer, iatrogenesis. That is why and that is exactly what we're seeing here. Tangent over, back to you, Dave. And it's, it's like, for the, for the listeners, just to understand, it is sort of like basic stuff we're talking about here in terms of if you've got a fungal infection, you use an antifungal. Like, you know, if you've actually got a viral infection, well, once again, straight from the get-go, antibiotics might not be the best course of action, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, further down the line, when you've acquired actual bacterial infections as a result of that, okay? But... Maybe let's talk about also where where even more of this overuse has come from, okay? Because is, mm. it, is it just is it just the misuse and the overuse? Also, like some interesting stats is like I think it's some something close to like forty five percent of women during labour will utilise antibiotics. So that's mm. pretty early on. Does that make sense? Mm. Okay. So and then well, let's look at children and and actually, you know, I used antibiotics and I wouldn't say I necessarily used a lot of antibiotics as a child. I'm so sure you used antibiotics as a child, but there's evidence to show that you're pretty common antibiotics that get used with children for things like chest infections and all those types of things. Just one course of antibiotics can actually have such a negative impact on the gut environment 
that this could last up to two years. So what we're so what we're saying is that the gut environment might not get back to where it should be yeah. for about two years. This is a long period of time. Now, I can't remember where I read this, where they're actually quoting the stats and saying that maybe on average that children up to the, about the age of 18, like you might've heard this joke yourself, yeah, okay, would have anywhere in the realms of about 10 to 20 courses of antibiotics, okay? Mm. Now, could that be evidence to say that if, if, if that's slightly true, that means the gut environment is never actually fully repairing and recovering? And mm. could this explain why we have such severe issues that are related to the gut? Yeah. There's an interesting um, so, study on this in, in children and they found, uh, it was a correlational study, but they found that the more courses of antibiotics a child took, the more likely they were to experience childhood obesity. Yeah, there's just so, there's just so much information, you know, and I encourage the listeners, I mean, go to DuckDuckGo, okay? Google if you want, yeah, okay? And then, you know, uh, just look up some of these things. I mean, these are just coming in mainstream media articles. Mm. Yeah, okay. Like you can find a, a lot of information there. So it's very, very easy to find. So, um, so once again, yeah, okay. There's 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 pretty alarming statistics here. Okay, and actually, uh, I came across a you know a research paper, and even you know, sort of organisations like the World Health Organization have even like really targeted how much of a problem antibody resistant bacterial infections are mm. and they're basically saying that certain things like pneumonia and tuberculosis and all these yeah. types of things are basically they've almost admitted that these bacterial strains are just totally resistant to the antibiotics and you know one thing that you know i actually put out some information around the other day and you know i've spoken to jake about um there, there was this instance, I just think it's relevant, okay, in Reno, in Nevada, so obviously in the US, where a woman actually had a particular bacterial infection, okay, and they actually used 26 different antibiotics against the bacterial infection, and none of the antibiotics worked, okay? And like, like so, so what I would say is that, it, imagine like you're, a, you're a, a carpenter, you're a laborer, okay, you're a worker, okay, and You've got a job that requires a, a chisel, but you keep on insisting on using a hammer. And that's a little bit what's going on at the moment, okay? Mm. And it's not that there's not other tools that we could be using for this. We're just choosing not to use yeah. those tools. That's more yeah. to the point, okay? Um, and we just go, well, let's just keep on trying this hammer, okay? And they might, I think there's, there, there might, and once again, don't fully quote me on this because this is a long time when I actually remember seeing this, okay? Where they're saying that maybe there's only like 32 antibiotics that might be, you know, a little bit more effective against, you know, um, more resilient and more resistant bacterial strains. So, we need to understand that the, the amount of antibiotics that are actually working against these, these bacteria strains is getting less. Mm. Okay. And, mm. you know, it's from, from my perspective, it's probably the greatest challenge that is actually facing the medical industry currently. Mm. Um, and you can actually look at it. The stats would support that. Okay. Because what they say is roughly about 3,500 people per day, die from antibiotic-resistant bacterial infections. Uh, and if we keep on going on at, at this trajectory, they're predicting by about 2050 that that would be the equivalent of 10 million people per year. Wow. 
Okay. And so they, they, and they said like in 2019, now remember the recording around this is not going to be fantastic. No. Let's be honest. Yeah. Okay. But they say in 2019 it was about 1.2 million people. I, I, I would imagine if the recording's not that great, it's probably going to be a lot more than that. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen some things where they say it was two, 2 million. Okay. But you know, this is, this is significant. And we would mm. think with statistics like that, okay, that it would be getting talked about a lot yeah. more and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's not. Yeah, okay? And it's, it's in really the scientific good. literature. That's the thing, right? We're seeing studies on this, but there's not, it's not in the public domain. It's not in, um, you know, we know there's up to about a 17-year lag as far as scientific literature and implementation at the clinical level. And it's not being, it doesn't seem to have altered behavior from a, a clinical level at all. You said the thing about if all you've got is a hammer. I saw this article, it's a two-year-old study now, and it was talking about one of the mechanisms which we're going to talk about in a sec behind antibiotic resistance being biofilms. And, and it was talking about that's why it's not working. We have an emerging issue. They call it a battleground. We have a battleground because of biofilms. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I think, okay, great, let's use biofilm agents, right? If that's the issue, let's deal with the biofilm. And the conclusion this study came to is, hopefully new technologies like nanoparticle antibiotics will be developed. It's like far out. This is like, this is all you can think about antibiotic, antibiotic, and with different type of antibiotics. It's like, no, there's actually other options here. And it, it, there's even, you know, um, talk and I can't remember if it was a Bloomberg article, it might've been, okay, where they were saying that was so much of a problem that maybe the technology is going to switch to the construction of certain vaccines that will directly target Mm, antibody resistant bacterial infections okay yeah. so once again it's okay it's just like all right so maybe there's an <laughs> acknowledgement that the hammer's not working okay but rather than actually going for the chisel and all these things that we we know are highly effective and actually the the, the bacteria cannot build up a resistance to okay well let's just create something completely different um even though like it's probably not as tested okay mm. it's not as trialed as the chisel yeah okay we're going to create something new and see how that goes. Mm. So, you know, and, and you know, something I was going to say that that even the CDC, once again, this was you know pre-COVID. Okay, it was like 2019, but they basically just came up with a whole list of like bacterial strains that they they were just saying were were high threat. Okay, so they're basically acknowledging that pretty much these bacterial strains antibiotics are just not very effective against mm. at all. And some of the things that were in this, people should be alarmed about, okay? Because they're pretty much saying like all candida strains. Mm. So I'll put this in perspective, okay? There's about 150 different strains of candida that we know about, okay? Now, when I first started doing this, which was a while ago, that was only selective candida strains that really were known to have a biofilm, okay? And so obviously antibiotic resistance and, you know, even like antifungals, which is obviously what should be used, were um, not going to be really effective against things like Candida albicans, Candida uh, cruci, and, 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 and these ones that you know, definitely did have biofilms. But what we're basically saying now is that pretty much all these Candida strains have biofilms mm. and that antibiotics, you know, these things aren't, aren't going to work against them. And it doesn't stop there because it's even things like Clostridium difficile, Okay, that's a positive gram bacteria. It's not pathogenic. Okay, and I think you've told me that there can be instances where people can die from that. Yeah, okay, mm. and even Streptococcus strains. So I think it's Streptococcus group A, Streptococcus group B. There's MRSA. Okay, so once again, this is a very 
antibiotic resistant bacteria. Okay, it's actually Staphylococcus aureus. And for people who don't know, Staphylococcus aureus tends to make up SIBO. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these bacteria strains I'm talking about, guess what? A lot of them tend to make up SIBO, like even like Pseudomonas strains. So, you know, I think Shigella is another one. Yeah, okay. So there's, you know, look, look, my point being, okay, is that um, the list is a lot longer than that. I just want to make it clear. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So there's a lot of these bacteria strains that are just high threat in terms of, okay, what we're doing is just not really working against these, these uh, antibiotic resistant bacterial strains. And why do we keep on persisting with using the hammer? Okay. Yeah. That's the, you know, that's the question that really needs to be asked. Okay. And the mechanisms that we would use once again, and you can see this in literature, okay, are, are highly effective at breaking down these protective mechanisms from these uh, bacterial strains. So, yeah, I think maybe, you know, is that is that a bit of a segue uh, into that? Do you know into what I mean? biofilms? Yeah, I think we should yeah. talk about that. Um, and maybe maybe let's talk about what a biofilm is first because you said that it's it's become more prevalent amongst both yeast and bacteria. Um, and one thing I just want to mention, maybe I'll, I'll mention this first and we talk about what it is, but there's some really interesting data over biofilms in hospital settings and in healthcare settings. I don't know, have you come across this, Dave? Oh, look, probably, probably a while ago. I definitely have come across a, you know, a lot of data on, on, on biofilms. It's, it's pretty interesting. And so, you know, I've had clients where, because you've mentioned negative gram bacteria. Negative doesn't mean it's bad necessarily. It's just more to do with the structure of it. But it, you know, negative gram bacteria does generally have a biofilm aspect to it. And there's been studies done on hospitals. So I actually wanted to tell a story first. I've had a client who used to get chronic UTIs, okay? So all the time, like uh, I think she was getting them basically fortnightly. And then, uh, you know, she was getting this for, for years. It was a really big issue. They're, they're going to have to do these pretty um, invasive procedures. But long story short, she worked with me. For about a year and a half, in the year and a half she worked with me, I think she had two UTIs. Now, both of those UTIs she got when she had to go to hospital, right? Now, and I forget the stat off the top of my head, but there's a, a very large amount of people who are admitted to hospital who will acquire bacterial infection in hospital. It's, it's very large. It's worth looking into. But what's even more interesting than that is this when studies done, there was one study where they took a sample and it was a sample of like sterilized equipment, okay? And they took over 60 samples and they took these from multiple different hospitals and they analyzed it and they found that 95% of these sterilized equipment samples contained biofilms. And they found that all of those biofilms they contained, majority of them were actually able to grow um, antibiotic-resistant staphylococcus, so hospitals are riddled with this stuff. There's actually another, another study or another, it's more like a, a case study of a hospital. I think it was in the UK and it was riddled. I think it was Klebsiella, but it was some negative gram bacteria. And what they did is they actually, I don't know why, but they actually tore down the hospital and they built a whole new hospital in the same location. And before they even admitted any patients, they did this sampling again. And this brand new hospital was riddled with negative gram bacteria and biofilms again. So this obviously this is not medical advice, but for me, if I wanted to get sick, I would go to a healthcare setting. I would go to a hospital. I can't think of anywhere worse to be 
if I if I wanted not to get sick, I can't think of anywhere worse to be. Oh, well, look, it's actually a great point. And actually, if you even if you looked up like Wikipedia and you want to look, you know, look up some of the individual strains of bacteria that myself and Jake talk about, and you know, if that is certain types of negative gram bacteria strains that are more pathogenic in nature, like Citrobacter fundi complex, Klebsiella pneumoniae, Klebsiella oxytocaca that a lot of the time, if you look up the Wikipedia sort of like explanation of what they are, a lot of the time they will say that you acquire them in hospitalization settings, mm. okay? And, mm. you know, it's good that you brought up the negative gram bacteria sort of aspect because when I was talking about like certain bacteria that almost naturally have an antibody resistance, well, that would be classified as negative gram bacteria, okay? Mm. And that's just to do with the cell structure yeah, because they have two cell membranes. And the outer membrane is made of LPS, lipopolysaccharides. Okay? And yes, you can break down the outer membrane of negative gram bacteria. And that's where 1 million to 3 million particles of LPS get released in your system. And obviously that's where it poses a huge amount of problems. But it's important to understand why it is so antibiotic resistant or why it is so resilient. Okay, And, and a lot of the time when you look up these negative gram bacteria strains, it will just say antibiotic resistant. Antibiotic resistant, okay? Uh, you're going to see that so commonly with negative gram bacteria strains, yeah. okay? And the reason it's it, it, it's so robust is because what it does, it just forms more LPS in the cytoplasm, which is like the nucleus, okay? And then that just permeates through the periplasm, through the peptidoglycan, through the periplasm, and then it just forms another membrane. Okay, you know the analogy that I sort of give. It's a little bit. It's a little bit like a like a lizard, like a skink. Mm. Okay, the defense mechanism for a skink, where when it feels threatened or something, maybe a bird picks it up by its tail. Okay, just drops its tail and it runs away. That's its defense mechanism. Okay, and then what does it do? It just grows another tail. Mm. And it's a little bit like that with the negative gram bacteria, because when there's shock and trauma within the host, and where the host, people don't understand where the host. Okay. Mm. Now it's defense mechanism for that when it feels threatened or when, you know, there's like bacteria wars taking place is that it releases that outer membrane, it releases into your system. And then it just basically creates more of the LPS and then just creates another membrane. And so, what, you know, and that's, and it's just structurally sound again, but where the real problem is lying is now, now these, these bacteria uh, strains, okay. That are just naturally antibody resistant. Have now they now now they get together in these colonies, uh, and so they get together in these groups and they and these tribes, and then they form the biofilm. And it's really important to understand that we're not talking about when the bacteria is just like a singular cell. Yeah, okay? we're talking about when the bacteria gets together in these you know these tribes and these colonies. Okay, and, you know a great example of that would be SIBO. Okay, because SIBO yeah. is essentially uh, going to where the food the the food is sitting there and fermenting and there's a lot of indigestible matter and they get there because, you know, that's basically their food source. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then to form the biofilm, okay. They really need to attach themselves to like a surface and especially where there's a, there's a lot of mucus. Okay. That's a lot, that's a lot easier for the bacteria and for the biofilm to form where there's like mucus. Okay. And that's why, you know, for people who don't know this, okay, that's why you can get a lot of biofilm within the nasal passage. Okay. And when you get a lot of biofilm built up within the nasal passage, I mean, you want to know why you probably got like a blocked nose and you can't breathe, you know, through your nose and so forth. A lot of the time that is excessive biofilm built up in the nasal passage. Okay. And that's how people get things like rhinositis. So if you've got that issue, has anyone ever told you that the possible cause of that is excessive biofilm build up 
within the nasal passage. Okay. Mm. And, you know, excessive biofilm buildup, just to put perspective on it. And like, we, I know, you know, you and I have spoken about this previously, but excessive biofilm has been linked to things like not just rhinositis, but strep throat. So if you get that frequently, once again, it's probably excessive biofilm, but even they say there's a link here with Lyme disease. Now people are going to go, well, you know, that's related to a tick and so forth. But you understand like, you know, the tick sort of the catalyst, okay? And it creates issues around the immune system. Okay, and when you get issues around the immune system, you're, you're going to be more subject to like bacterial infections. So once again, we just, we've got to look at, yes, the tick being the catalyst, but what reaction is it created and, and, and where does where has that left the individual? Yeah, okay. And even, you know, particular types of autoimmune conditions, okay, like lupus, you know, IBD conditions like ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease. There's even so, a link to implant illness. There's one study that found that a lot of breast implants actually had contained biofilm. That's, you know, you got me intrigued on that one. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, so I just want to put some, you know, perspective on it in terms of like excessive amounts of biofilm have been linked to a lot of serious diseases and ailments. Yeah, okay. So this biofilm, so it's it's like a protective mechanism for bacteria. And it's not just one bacteria. It's not like it's just going to be one type that's going to establish this biofilm. It can be this melting pot of multiple different types that are all getting together. And there's different, I guess you would say different like, severity or different sort of extensive biofilm i like to say robustness yeah okay yeah. And, and so we're not so 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 biofilm can be newly formed mm -hmm. and that's where you might have some justification to say and and once again i'm not sure on the research with this okay but you might have some justification to say that maybe antibiotics if something is newly formed sure. like a newly formed biofilm maybe it could be effective against the newly formed biofilm okay but what we need to ask ourselves is how many people just have like newly formed yeah. biofilm? So a lot of time the biofilm is well established. Yeah. And when it's well established, okay, um, trust me, the antibiotics are not going to be effective against yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, considering certain types of gut motility issues like SIBO are on the rise. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Okay. And with the, these things being on the rise, um, when we're talking about extremely robust biofilm, okay, SIBO has an extremely robust biofilm. Negative gram bacteria, extremely robust biofilm. And a lot of SIBO is made up of negative gram bacteria. Okay? Mm -hmm. And then the actual strains within them, like Staphylococcus aureus, okay, MRSA, a lot of these bacteria strains, antibiotics just don't work against those strains. Okay, yeah. So you've got the biofilm, it's more robust. And then it's the actual bacteria strains within that. Like, how do you think the antibiotics are going to go yeah. at trying to, to get rid of that bacterial overgrowth? And that's an important note we need to clarify because antibiotics are designed. So you're talking about the robustness and you said if it's like a newly formed biofilm, I guess a way to, to sort of envision that is envisaged is that there might be like you know small amounts of bacteria clustered together there might be kind of like multiple clusters and it's not like you know full of heaps and heaps and heaps of bacterial organisms yeah and antibiotics are designed to effectively take out like free floating bacteria yeah it's not designed to take out this whole tribe it's all sort of amalgamated together and so the analogy i use for biofilm structures i say it can be like a tent so it doesn't have like a whole lot of structural integrity to it it can be like a building or it can be like a skyscraper. And so you're talking about like these skyscrapers where it's like impenetrable. Like you're not going to, an antibody's going to do nothing in that circumstance, right? So antibodies aren't even, aren't even the right tool for this job. Like if the biofilm is there, the antibody is not going to address that biofilm. It's actually going to get into it. And these biofilms, like, you know, I use the analogy of the skyscraper, but they're actually very complex. Like there's even, they've even got like a, a 
trash mechanism, like a garbage mechanism, where they, they sort of have this whole cyclical approach where they're pumping out waste products and like back into the bloodstream. Like it's, these are pretty complex structures, aren't they? Well, they, 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 I mean, I think a good analogy that I heard around like biofilms and sort of antibiotics, okay, is that there's no more hostile environment for antibiotics than biofilms. Mm. And they, so what they actually, it's almost like, so if, because your immune system, when you've got bacterial infections, you've got pathogens, okay, your immune system is going to try and help you out. Yeah. Okay. So the immune system is not going to go, oh, yeah, we, can't, we don't care. Yeah. Okay. So it's going to try and help you out. But what they say is like when these things encapsulated in the, in the biofilm, that it actually can stop the immune cells being able to identify the pathogens and the microorganisms within that protective mucilage. I've got a question for you, Dave. What do you think about this? So I've heard the hypothesis that when someone does like a stool test, for example, it might come up with a number of different bacteria. Say there is a biofilm there. It could potentially be hiding bacteria that may not come up in the stool test. And then you do some work, you use a biofilm agent, whatever, and you do another test and different bacteria comes up. And the hypothesis I've heard is, well, there might've been stuff sort of hidden within the biofilm. You've disrupted the biofilm. Now you're actually identifying that stuff. Does that... I think there's a I think there's a possibility there. I mean, I never discredited anything to be honest. Okay, mm. and there's there's loads of limitations with things like stool testing. Yeah, there's just loads of limitations in in testing in general. Yeah, like yeah. I, I just don't sit in that realms and, and say that there's one type of testing that's better than anything else. No, it, mm. some some well, types of testing might be better for analyzing certain aspects, but then they've got the limitations and yeah. other things. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I think it's always possible that just certain things aren't getting picked up. Yeah, yeah. okay. Especially um, yeast. I mean, we see that all the time with yeast. Some of all the yeast symptoms under the sun, the bloods will suggest yeast. They do a PCR test or they do a stool test, and there's no yeast. And especially something like CFO, small intestinal fungal yeah. overgrowth, okay? Yeah. Because we're just talking about proximity, okay? And 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 a lot of the time, if we're doing a stool test, well, the large intestine, the colon, it's just close to the rectum, okay? So it's going to be a lot easier to identify a lot of the singular strains. Yeah. And something that is actually within the small intestine is going to be a lot harder. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it is complex, okay, biofilm, okay? You know, and even what makes up the biofilm, I mean, that's scary well, that's something itself, important. Okay? Yeah, what does make it up? Yeah, so you, you, you do get a, poly, uh, they call like a polysaccharide like matrix, okay? So this is like a gel-like substance. Now within that, you can have proteins, okay? Yep. There's ions, there's fluids. Now you, you do have pro-inflammatory proteins. And actually there's one particular pro-inflammatory protein that makes up a high, uh, a high ratio of biofilm, okay? And that's called GEL3. Now for people who don't know, GEL3 can actually make up protective membranes around things like tumors, as well yeah okay and so understand if you've got a lot of bacterial issues and then you do get things like you know tumors if you got more like gel3 okay the gel3 can be used as a protective membrane that surrounds the tumor stopping you from minimizing the tumor growth so you know these pro-inflammatory proteins gel3 that makes it up but also even minerals can actually make up biofilm as well mm-hmm. yeah okay so you know things like calcium magnesium okay but the one that gets talked about a lot more and it, it does make up a high proportion is iron. And that's why we, we commonly talk about, you know, bacteria essentially can be robbing you of iron. Yeah. Okay? If you're breaking down the biofilm, okay, that might be why there's a little bit more iron within the bloodstream. That's a possibility as well. And that's what could be causing a lot of inconsistencies around iron as well. So, and then the other things that actually can make up biofilms, just heavy metals. Um, yeah. And actually, if you look at it, there's certain types of bacteria strains 
that actually have an affinity for certain types yeah. of heavy metals. Now, I can't give you the reason to why Pseudomonas has a preference towards mercury, okay? Yeah. I mean, I find it fascinating, but I can't give you the reason to why it prefers to use the mercury yeah. to, to construct this biofilm. But it can be made up of cadmium, okay? Yeah. It can be made up of lead. Okay? Cadmium is so, more, that's especially Staphylococcus, isn't it? I believe so. Like it's 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 hard to like full. I think it's hard to fully identify. Yeah. You know all those sort of trends with you know yeah. what types of heavy metals are, uh, you know, are more correlated with certain types of bacteria. I think there can be a little bit of crossover sure. there. But if you look at it, if you got something like SIBO, I mean, I just think SIBO is a great example for robust biofilm. Okay, yeah. because you've just got so many different types of bacteria strains. Okay. Yeah. So if we got Pseudomonas and we got Staphylococcus and we got all these, well, just think of now all the heavy metals that are making up that biofilm. Okay. Yeah. And what we've got to understand there, that's going to cause issues around heavy metals as well. And when you're breaking down the biofilm and permeating through the biofilm, a lot of these heavy metals are also going to get released in your system. Uh, and if you don't have a good ability, like if you don't have a good sulfation pathway, okay, or detoxification pathways, glutathionation or whatever that might be, okay, then you're going to have a lot more of these heavy metals floating around your bloodstream and potentially these heavy metals could even lodge in areas like the brain. Yeah. Um, and that's why I would generally say that you could take two people and this person's got, you know, bacterial issues and this person doesn't put them in an environment where they get exposed to like heavy metals. Yeah. Now, which person is going to struggle with heavy metals the most? Okay. It's yeah. definitely going to be the person with the bacterial issues. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So these biofilms, you know, they're, they're, they're incredibly robust. And as I said, very hostile for, for antibiotics in terms of antibiotics, just they're not very effective. Uh, what's cool, I guess, is that a lot of natural, obviously there's natural biofilm disruptors. We'll touch on those in a sec. But if we're just talking about an antibody perspective, what you and I would use would be herbal antimicrobials. And what's cool is that, in fact, a lot of the time herbal antimicrobials actually have, firstly, they, they're not, um, bacteria can't develop the same kind of resistance to them, right? And, and especially because a lot of these herbals we're talking about, things like aged garlic and berberine, these have dozens of different antimicrobial compounds. Like it's not just the one, there can be 60 or 70 different compounds within that one, one type, yeah? So not only is it a lot harder to create resistance to, but second to that, a lot of these herbals actually have biofilm disrupting properties as well which antibiotics don't have so in nature we've actually got a better alternative that does a better job is much more multifaceted than what we're actually able to make yeah well and you know if we use some examples here like one great example is colloidal silver mm. you know without going too much into colloidal silver you can but colloidal silver has biofilm disrupting properties okay yeah. and not only does it break down the biofilm but it's very good so if you're if you break down the, the yeast cell, okay, so the chidium membrane, okay, and then the fluid from the yeast cell oozes out. Well, well, colloidal silver is very good for mopping up that fluid. And actually what it does stop, which is essential, especially with something like candida and yeast, is it stops cellular replication, okay? So yeah. it stops the actual proliferation yeah. of the candida and the yeast and the bacteria. You know, and, 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 you know, from my perspective, I'm sure you probably chime in here, okay, but colloidal silver gets sort of demonized, okay? Yeah, it does all um, the time. Yeah, and we're not talking, you know, what's the, the guy called Papa Smurf, the guy who's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, like, you know, obviously, you know, if you sat there and you just drank colloidal silver all day, well, of course, you, you know, your skin would turn blue and could there be some you know, detrimental problems there? Of course. But having something like, you know, 
five mil three times a day, okay? And, and, it, and, it, and it's relatively safeguard, okay? And what I mean by that, it just does not wipe, because, you know, with something like candida and yeast, okay, you don't want something that's just going to wipe out your, your actual beneficial flora, okay? Because mm. that's probably what led you to get the candida and the yeast overgrowth yep. in the first place. Okay? Why would you want to do that? Okay? And obviously yep. antibiotics, and this is why you can increase your rate of depression by 25% when you take a course of antibiotics, because what you're doing is you're wiping out the beneficial flora and the beneficial flora are involved in the chemical conversion processes for things like neurotransmitters. That's why it's affecting your brain. Okay, mm. But something like colloidal silver, okay, it doesn't wipe out your lactobacillus. It doesn't wipe out your bifidobacteria. And trust me, for something like candida and yeast, you want to be keeping in check like your lactobacillus. Yeah ratios so you know colloidal silver okay like you know I, look i i like grapefruit seed extract okay it's look so so what like, you're giving us a list of at the moment these are things that are both biofilm disruptors and antimicrobials they're doing the job of the the the, the job we wish antibiotics was doing yeah yeah well look 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 i wouldn't i wouldn't say that grapefruit seed extract would be really renowned for its like biofilm disrupting sure. properties. Okay. But what I really love about grapefruit seed extract, and once again, there's going to be, you know, maybe people out there, functional medicine practitioners and naturopaths that go, Oh, look, you know, a lot of the research on grapefruit seed extract is, you know, there's a lot of collateral damage and yes, it can wipe out your lactobacillus and your bifidobacterium. Okay. But I would tend to say a lot of the negative aspects around grapefruit seed extract are really just to do with the quality. Yeah. But if you get really good quality grapefruit seed extract, that is nature's antibiotic. So what I'm saying is super powerful, okay? So if you've got really resilient and really like antibiotic-resistant bacterial strains, you know, like a lot of the time I've had people where we've done antimicrobial protocols, what's come out as the highest sensitivity uh, in the testing that they've done has been grapefruit seed extract, okay? Maybe we didn't get rid of everything. And then we do, when we do the retest, the grapefruit seed extract still comes out yeah. as the highest sensitivity out of all the herbal antimicrobials and even the antibiotics. Yeah, okay? So there's no resistance uh, that was built in that stage. It just doesn't, it, you know, a bacteria just does not seem to build up a resistance to something yeah. like grapefruit seed extract. Okay. And it's very effective against candida albicans. So well, yes, just on candida, Dave, I actually did see a study, not sure if you've seen this, where it was, they tested the effect of GAC on candida biofilms and it was quite effective. Yeah. I just, and, and what they say is that, you know, something like grapefruit seed extract works against up to about 700 to 800 different bacterial strains. I mean, that's huge. And, you know, some of these other ones, like even like berberine, now berberine, you know, candida and yeast can't really seem to build up a resistance to it. Yeah. Okay. But the good thing about something like berberine, you know, I think it's highly effective against SIBO. Um, yeah. But it also stops like pro-inflammatory proteins, like cytokines and so forth, sort of yep. damaging the intracellular tight junctions. Yep. It's actually damaging the gut lining. And, you know, berberine is also nature's metformin. So it actually helps yep. to drive glucose in the cell for energy. So and you it promotes acumancia. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So I'm, I'm learning something here, guys. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you know, and it even lowers things like LDL particles, okay, if that's an issue for you. So once again, it's just so multifaceted. And allicin, okay, you know, allicin's very effective against mm. candida and yeast, okay, it's definitely effective against something like SIBO, but it's great for lowering things like LDL particles when you've got high, high yeah. elevation in fasting triglycerides, okay, if you, if you do have issues around LDL cholesterol and so forth. So once again, your H. pylori can be effective against that as well. So it's just so multifaceted. And once again, it's very, very hard for the bacteria to build up a total resistance to it. Now, it might have a percentage where it's not as effective against other 
yeah. natural antimicrobials, okay? But it's still somewhat effective. That's yeah. my point, yeah, yeah. okay? Um, I do like oregano oil. I know you're not big on it, but I am going to mention it because it does also have pretty effective anti-biofilm properties as well, uh, especially against negative gram bacteria biofilm. So uh, there's at least one It's very multifaceted. I'll, I'll look, I'll, yeah. I'll definitely I mean, look, definitely it's good against that, but... yeast, good against bacteria, okay, against parasites and... There was one study, I think they tested like 13 different biofilms and it was effective against all 13 different types. So it is one sort of caveat is I do notice it is one of those antimicrobials that people, more people do respond negatively to, especially I've noticed with people with like gastritis, they often respond negatively to it. But for the right client, I do think it can be a good option. And I would say out of all the herbal antimicrobials, you know, from my experience, oregano oil would be the one that bacteria can build up a resistance too. Um, yeah, I've seen that too, yeah. In, yeah, in test, yeah. In but that doesn't, once again, I'm not saying it's not effective, uh, you know, like it's very it's very broad spectrum, okay? It's very good against protozoa parasites, very good against candida and yeast, okay? Well-documented against SIBO. But once again, just from my experience, it can be a little bit easier for the bacteria to build up a resistance to it, yeah? yeah. yeah. Um, so that'd be one if you've used in the past, it's probably not a good one to use again. Yeah, and then there's just like... How about we start using biofilm agents? Yes. Um, And there's a lot of biofilm agents that we know are highly effective. Okay. Bacteria cannot build up a resistance to. And one of those, you know, and there is some research on this. It's called uh, Integro Pectin. Okay. And what I'm going to talk about here is modified citrus pectin. Okay. And and so modified citrus pectin, amazing for the blood brain barrier. It's Mm -hmm. a GI binder. So it's it's good for pulling in bacterial byproducts, heavy metals, all these types of things. It's really good for LPS binding. Hey. Yes, amazing. Like actually the, the the research and just the information on modified citrus pectin, I'm sure there's like more to come, but it's really positive. Yeah, okay. And I know you've done a lot of research around like women's health ailments, like endometriosis, yeah. but where it's just huge is that modified citrus pectin, it actually blocks GAL3. Now, once yeah. again, what did I say? GAL3 is a major pro-inflammatory protein that makes up biofilm. Yeah. It actually blocks the GAL3. So it actually stops the biofilm from reforming, okay? And you got to understand one of the major issues with a lot of these antibiotic-resistant bacterial infections is that a lot of these bacteria, they just, you know, that people just relapse, okay? And so yeah. they just, they, they get the bacterial infections again. And using some of the modified citrus pectin to block the GAL3, it just makes perfect sense. And that's once the again, same the... mechanism. You mentioned endometriosis. That's the same mechanism, well, that and the LPS of why it helps with endo. So, you know, there is, if people are interested, there's a study called, so GAL3, so Galactin3 plays an important role in endometriosis development and it is, and is a target to endometriosis treatment. So they don't test, I haven't seen any, any studies using modified citrus pectin, but they are looking at how GAL3 plays a role in it. And you and I both know that modified citrus pectin impacts that. And so it makes logical sense that that'd be worth using. Yeah, and then like even, you know, I think they're exploring the whole thing of using modified citrus pectin with, you know, cancer. Mm-hmm. Because once again, if the if the tumors are actually sort of mm-hmm. protected by the GAL3 sort of like, you know, protective like membrane, okay, well, the modified citrus pectin is going to be very good for breaking down or, you know, stopping, blocking the GAL3, yeah, okay? Mm-hmm. So then it's going to have some advantages to something like cancer as well. So that would be one. And then also, you know, like colloidal silver, once again, mm-hmm. it's, it's got some benefits around that. NAC, 
So N-acetylcysteine, it's a mucolytic agent. Now, obviously they have used it in the medical realms for a long period of time and they use it for things like lung disease. You know, it's got huge advantages to the brain, but it's very good for being a mucolytic agent. Okay, well, so once again, we're talking about it like a mucilage. Yeah. Okay, and so that can be something that we can use to break down that, that biofilm as well. And then, you know, certain types of enzymes and that can be things like natokinase, lumbrokinase, and then there's lysozymes and lysozymes you do as well. Yep. Yep. And lysozymes you do find in things like goat's colostrum, just to let you know. So, so those we know enzymes the- are super quick. So those are what are called proteolytic enzymes. So they break down protein. So they're also good for like inflammatory proteins, CRP, things like that. But you, you said that the biofilm contains some of these protein units. So that's why we're using proteolytic enzymes. Yeah. And also to understand that even things like lysozymes, well, lysozymes, we actually produce our own lysozymes. Okay. And you actually produce them from panacea cells which actually are located at the base of the intestinal crypt. So actually at the base of the villi. And people go, well, why do I need to take something like lysozymes if I actually produce those? Okay, well, if there's any compromisation, if you've got severe intestinal permeability and damage to the gut line, okay, that can impede on your ability to produce sufficient amounts of lysozymes. Okay, mm-hmm. And that's going to affect your ability to break down or well, to deal with pathogens and microorganisms, but also to be more effective at breaking down these biofilms and these protective mucilages. Mm. Okay. So then there's a justification that you're going to need a little bit of help here because you just don't have the means and the capability of really doing that sufficiently yourself. And the other one is, you know, there's a, there's, there's a compound called monolurin and people might call it a luricidin, but we're really talking about like luric acid. Okay. And this is a particular saturated fat, but monolurin you actually find in, Uh, What it is, is basically luric acid and glycerol. And you actually just find it in coconut oil, so coconut fat. And there's actually some really good studies on this. They actually showed that monolurin was highly effective against, as I said, one of the most antibiotic-resistant bacterial strains, which is actually MRSA or Staphylococcus aureus. Once again, I said Staphylococcus aureus makes up definitely things like SIBO, and it's generally multi-drug resistant. Okay, so it's... Very, very resilient and monolurin has actually been found to be effective for this. And also what they found is like, I think it was another study where they uh, had people with like uh, skin infections and actually found, found using the monolurin was just as effective. And I was saying more effective, but just as effective as utilizing antibiotics for the skin infections. Mm. But the good thing about it is that the bacteria could not build up a resistance to it. So it was not creating any like antibiotic resistant bacterial issues and then there's just some also some uh, studies where they've shown that it can be effective against it actually helps with viruses where it actually helps to make the virus inactive and they they've shown that in pretty severe viruses like things like measles Mm -hmm. okay and the the good thing about something like monolurin is it's highly effective it's antifungal so it's really good against yeast and candida and that would include things like CIFO but you know, what, what you could use is like coconut oil, MCT oil. Uh, so, yeah, so it's going to be a bit more lauric acid in coconut oil, but then MCT oil is going to have a little bit more caprylic acid, which is also a good antimicrobial as well, especially against yeast, but also bacteria. So both are good options and you could kind of, you know, decide which one you're going to use based on if you want a little bit more biofilm support maybe, or you want a little bit and, more. And caprylic acid is actually good from a biofilm perspective as well. Okay. It is quite good at puncturing holes in biofilm. And that's why, you know, people who probably, you know, maybe they have a bit of coconut oil, they have a bit of MCT oil and they have 
quite a negative response to it. And the way they would analyze that is just going, well, you know, I just don't really do well on coconut oil and MCT oil. Well, the other way you could look at it is that you've got a whole heap of biofilm and you've got things like candida and yeast. So you've actually got opportunistic bacteria. And that's probably more likely the the actual scenario. Especially a small amount and it's causing issues. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So this, you know, once again, okay, it's, we, we have the chisels. Okay. Yeah. We, 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 okay. We have other tools. Yeah. Okay. But once again, if you never use other, the other tools, you're, you're not really going to know what they're actually capable of. Okay. Yeah. Um, I know what they're capable of. I'm sure you're the same. Okay. We've seen, you know, the, uh, you know, the positive impact when you start like, you know, breaking down these really robust biofilms, how much better people can feel. Okay. So it's not like we don't have the tools. That's the big thing yeah. I want to say. And those biofilm agents. So, you know, they should be added, even if someone was using an antibiotic route for something like SIBO, you and I would say that they should be adding in a biofilm agent. That's going to make that much more efficacious. Even if they're using antimicrobials, natural herbals, they should still be using a biofilm agent. And the way, I mean, there's multiple ways you can do it. You can use a more potent biofilm agent, a biofilm disruptor, something like Interface Plus would be a a sort of example there. Or, uh, and this is where I tend to do it, I'm not sure about you, Dave, but I tend to use multiple forms and maybe maybe a little bit less potent, but, you know, I might be using maybe ginger tea because ginger's got some anti, some biofilm disrupting properties. I'll be using MCT oil for the caprylic acid. I'm, maybe I've got the oregano oil in there. I've got NAC in there. So I'm kind of hitting it from multiple different angles. Maybe they're colloidal silver, whatever. Well, they so, even say things like, you know, like CBD oil. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, better carophyllenes, like, like, you know, these types of things. Okay. And better carophyllenes that people don't know do actually does play on cannabinoid receptors. Uh, but these actually have some biofilm disrupting properties as well. Okay. Yeah. So I 100% agree with you. Most of the time, it's not just coming down to just using a, a direct biofilm agent. You're yeah. probably going to use the NAC on top of that. You're going to use some MCT and you, you, you might use some of these other compounds as well. Because, you know, I think you might have told me this quite a while ago. Is there might be evidence to say that, you know, very, very robust biofilms yeah. that you might need to use some sort of biofilm agent to really make sure that you, you, you really break down these biofilms from anywhere from six to 12 months. Now I'm not yeah. saying people to go out and do that. Okay. But this is telling you how robust these biofilms are actually getting. Yeah. And even, even durations around like trying to get rid of bacteria were well, once upon a time, maybe antimicrobial protocols were like four, six weeks. And I yeah. know people still setting it out as, as little timeframes as that from, but from my experience, you're not really accounting for the biofilm. Yeah. Okay. Like it's just getting more robust. And I wish it could be like four to six weeks. Okay? Yeah. But a lot of time these, these antimicrobial regimes have just got to be a lot longer. Yeah. I'm not saying that's the way it should be. I'm just saying that uh, as these things it's are getting working. more robust, it, yeah. it's, you, 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 you're going to have to probably extend the time frame. You're going to have to probably up the dosage and you're probably going to have to use multi-layer biofilm agents and so forth to really make inroads into it. Yeah, yeah. And that would be dosing it multiple times a day. We would normally do morning, afternoon and evening. Um, I normally will add in a biofilm agent say, four weeks before I start the antimicrobial. So it could be as simple as, you know, maybe the MCT oil and NAC. And then we're going to continue that going with maybe some extra biofilm agents in the antimicrobial phase. And and even a little bit post. Yeah. Okay. There could be some evidence to just run a little bit post just to make sure that there's no relapse with the bacteria, especially something like modified citrus pectin in that instance. Okay. Because obviously it blocks the GAL3. 
So, you know, once again, I just don't think people are, you know, they might only be running the modified citrus pectin, the biofilm agent only in the antimicrobial phase. And once upon a time that might worked, that might've worked really efficiently. Okay. But then there's definitely some evidence to show that we probably need to run these things a little bit yeah. longer. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. Dave, we should leave it there. That turned into a bit of a biofilm podcast, but it is something that's not been spoken about enough. So hopefully people are able to take some info away from this and, and implement with themselves or with clients. Anyway, Dave, thank you as always for your knowledge. Uh, I learned a lot here because this is something that, you know, I've not dug too deep into. So I got as much out of this as hopefully everyone else listening. Yeah. And the last thing I'd say, you know, just before we clock off, okay, is that like what we're doing currently is not making this problem better. Yeah. And so that is something that we really have to address as well is what are we doing currently? We need to change that. Okay. Because remember, we didn't even talk about like the antibiotics, okay, that you get from food production, agriculture, yeah. okay. And that's just exacerbating that problem. It's a conversation for another time. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for listening, guys. As always, we hope this podcast was helpful. If you want to continue to connect with us, our social media profiles are linked in the show notes. And don't forget, the contents of this podcast are for educational purposes only. None of the information provided in the gut feeling is intended to treat, diagnose, or give medical advice. So please consult a healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle.